This is Bonjour Chai, the It's Not Easy Being Art Green edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbofi and special guest host Laura Atkins. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk about the state of Jewish media in the aftermath of the October 7th tragedy, and another Jewish leader is under scrutiny as allegations of abuse comes to light. All this and more. Stay tuned. Don't take half measures when it comes to home security. Alarms and cameras work, but they'll only tell you that your worst nightmare just came true. Safety Screen by Metalex for windows and doors will keep your family safe and sound with real stopping power. They can't be cut, pried, or bashed in, so you can enjoy carefree ventilation in the spring and fall with peace of mind. And protect your fixed windows and doors with rock glass, an absolutely unbreakable clear covering. Call 416-638-2539 or visit metalexsecurity.com to book your free consultation. That's M-E-T-A-L-E-X security.com. Remember, prevention is always better than the cure. Phoebe. How's it going? All right. How are you doing, Avi? I'm doing okay. I had my first of any child's um, sports meet, a sports-like uh, event. She told me that they were having a fencing meet, and I thought that they were fencing meat. So when I showed up, I thought <laughs> I was getting cheap steaks because, you know, that's, you know, it came off the back of a truck. But uh, clearly that was not to be. <laughs> I do have a correction from a reader uh, from last week that the official position of the reform movement that it is not necessary um, to have circumcision and that there is a plurality of rabbis within the movement that will convert without circumcision. So that's a correction that uh, I did not. I I said I wasn't sure last week, and I guess some people are confused, but um, we have vigilant listeners, and they write in when they tell us we're wrong, and uh, I was wrong. That's interesting to know. Also, I should say that whenever that topic, circumcision, comes up, one's inbox overfloweth. I don't know why Mm. I think it is that there is a half of the world finds this topic fascinating, not circumcision itself, but just anything in that part of the body. And one one gets a lot of email. Good to know. Let us introduce our guest, Laura. You have taught at Yeshiva University Stern College for Women. You were the editor of Jewish Insider. You were the opinion editor of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. And until uh, very recently, I, I understand that we are at the tail end of your being the opinion editor at The Forward. And you're leaving journalism to work at Jewish Women International. We have a lot to talk about. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So Jewish media seems to be having a moment right now. As uh, our producer Zach said it in the uh, meeting earlier this week, Jewish media is going gangbusters. Um, Given your years of being part of it, um, what can you tell us about the state of Jewish media that it was so moribund for a while now seems to have reverse course? Is it just about October 7th? Is there other things in the air? What's happening? I mean, I wouldn't get too optimistic about the future of Jewish journalism just yet. I would say that there is certainly not in my lifetime been a more vital time to have robust, independent Jewish press, both because of obviously what's happening in Israel, but also the reaction in the States, in Europe, in the Western world, and all of the disinformation, it's it's a really urgent time to have really thoughtful people with a deep understanding of both Israel and the diaspora covering this stuff. That being said, the media environment is very challenging, and Jewish organizations are no exception. Um, yesterday, you know, the messenger closed and fired all of its employees and they found out in the New York times, um, one of my colleagues from the forward actually had left to go join the messenger. So, you know, it's a very difficult time and including at the forward, it's, it's not a business that necessarily makes money. Um, the forward is a nonprofit. We rely entirely on donations there's no there's no real profit model right now in the post ad supported world. So it's still a very challenging time to like run these things and that results in a lot of newspapers that aren't as independent and are run through the federation system or things like that. So um I think it is certainly you know the the world's attention is on Israel for better or for worse and Jewish journalists especially those working at Jewish outlets tend to have a lot of specialized knowledge that can be really helpful in informing people about what's happening, but also, 
you know, part of the job, I think, of Jewish journalism is that sense of community that you're able to to give readers. So something I've been wondering about, actually, since uh, we were together at The Forward um, a bunch of years ago, is sort of who the readership is, who are the audiences for Jewish journalism, because some of it is people who have googled some sort of anti-semitic search mm-hmm. terms and they land right. on a jewish publication like who's secretly jewish or whatever and then yeah. you get the forwards like i guess i'm just wondering as somebody who works in jewish media um and just you know as somebody who's jewish like who is the audience who who are we um doing this for i guess is it the general population is it the Jewish community and the Jewish community defined in what way? Like, yeah. So this is something that actually makes me very optimistic for the future of Jewish journalism in whatever form it will take. I think there's a stereotype among a lot of folks that readers of Jewish papers, the forward in particular, you know, we've been around since 1897. The perception is the reader is old. The reader is, you know, crusty leftist. That's, that's definitely not the case anymore. I actually find that our reader statistics, on our website at least, very much match the breakdown of the Jewish population age-wise and demographics-wise. We have a lot of young readers, particularly on Instagram. We don't really have a TikTok presence at the moment, but on Instagram we have a huge, super engaged following of both millennial and Gen Z Jews. The audience is really, I like to think that we are speaking to a Jewish audience primarily, but also to people who want to understand, for us, the American Jewish community. So, for example, one of our big news stories before October 7th was all of the happenings with George Santos, the disgraced congressman who, among other things, lied about having Jewish ancestry. And there was a lot of interest and fascination with that story for a general audience. But our bread and butter readers are definitely... Jews who, you know, of various ages who are pretty engaged with Jewish life in some way or another. But there was a really fascinating statistic in the last Pew survey. I don't want to miss say the percentage. I think it was something like 40% of Jews surveyed, self-reported, like reading Jewish news as a way of feeling connected. So I think there's... Yeah, nice. so it's nice. And, you know, there, there's kind of, I spent a long time in the Orthodox world, and I think sometimes there's kind of this looking down the nose at the 90% of Jews who are not Orthodox in the ways they choose to practice their Judaism, you know, through music and food and culture. But I think it's really cool that we have such an engaged Jewish community, even at a time where it's in some ways never been easier to just assimilate. I was just going to ask, so you, you paint a very rosy picture of at least the, maybe not the uh, the fate of Jewish journalism insofar as it is part of the fate of journalism, which is often looks pretty grim, but what is leading you at this point in time away from journalism? It's It's definitely very bittersweet. I, you know, have only worked professionally as a journalist. I, it's a very urgent time for independent investigations and reporting and writing and I will still be still be writing columns for the forward but I when I was reporting in Israel on the ground I spent most of October on the ground in Israel and we hadn't seen sexual violence used in this conflict really before as a weapon of war but when I covered the war or Russia's invasion of Ukraine Um, the previous year, from the States, a lot of the women I interviewed spoke about the ways in which the Russian army used sexual violence as a tool of demoralizing the population. And when I was in Israel, even in the early days where it really wasn't clear the extent to which actual sexual violence had occurred, the extent to which Hamas broadcast their acts, including things that, that gave the impression of such violence being committed, was having a profound effect on the psyche of the Israeli population. And watching that and then coming back to the States and seeing just the massive attempt to either minimize or dismiss or cast doubt on the idea that this violence had occurred made me 
A, start to look into some of the reasons why that was happening, and B, want to work much more hands-on on that issue. So Jewish Women International, where I'm going, their, their biggest issues um, before October 7th were more domestic violence issues, like gun laws and closing loopholes for, for abusers and things like that. But since October 7th, a lot of their work has been basically getting the international women's communities to acknowledge that this happened. And it's sad that the bar is, is kind of on the floor in that way, but um, that's, that's the work ahead. I, I have a theory about this, and before we get into the more of the work ahead, maybe you can uh, either confirm or disabuse me of this idea, but I think that the reason why many people um, downplay the uh, sexual violence that happens as a weapon of war is they may not be aware of how premeditated it actually is, mm. right? There's this sense, and again, it's a personal theory of mine, that people sort of assume like these people are going in to commit all this violence and they happen to see women and they just get overcome and then they rape them. And that's that without thinking that this is actually going to be premeditated. Yeah, no, I think thankfully the West, those of us in the West who don't have ties to the Middle East or other regions where conflict is more frequent, don't really have any experience of war, especially those of us who are, you know, in our twenties and thirties, we don't really have in living memory any experience of having to think and see vis visibly and viscerally what war actually looks like. And I think this also applies to the reaction to Israel's, you know, counter invasion of Gaza um, and the reaction to the way that has been playing out. There's, you know, we've just been so insulated from the realities of, of how terrorism looks and how war looks and people that, again, have covered like Russia and Ukraine and, and other conflicts in which this is more frequent, this, this was not surprising to them. Um, but I, I think that it is very shocking and you don't want to believe that, that this is how it is playing out. I think that's also a part of it. Like you don't want to, there was an interview with, I believe, Graham Wood of The Atlantic who has covered ISIS and he was talking about seeing the footage of you know, the Hamas broadcasts from October 7th. And he said the brutality and the, just the precision and the vindictiveness was worse than he'd even seen covering ISIS. And I think we don't want to believe human beings are capable of that also. So I think, I think that's also part of it. Um, some, I have a, a, maybe a slightly different theory about this, although it's not really an instead of, it's just sort of a, a yes and, I guess, but like, it just a moment when women's safety was considered really a central preoccupation of progressives, of right thinking people generally, it was really, really, that was the story. And then that changed. And there was a big backlash to it in the form of, oh, no, actually, like, there, there are a bunch of privileged women who have nothing to complain about. There are Karens, you know, maybe they're all secret racist, maybe they're all whatever, you know what I mean? Like, there was this kind of moment where that was no longer the thing and it wasn't only that like it was supplanted by other concerns but more that no actually these are that it's weapon weaponized fragility whenever you know women are express concerns about safety and what i've seen in a lot of the reactions to the sexual viol violence of october 7th has been sort of like but look at what's happening in gaza mm -hmm. you know right. dividing the whole world into sort of um, oppressors and oppressed. Well, the, mm. these women, you know, like for a certain sort of progressive, they are part of team oppressor, therefore it's fine. And that is a lot of what I have seen. No, I think that's 100% correct. And there's also, and this, I didn't realize the extent to which this is true until I, I did some more reporting on it. But the New York Times did a big poll of American voters um, around Israel, Gaza, and the war um, in November, I believe or early December. And one of the findings that um, kind of surprised me is that independent of age or other characteristics, a person's TikTok usage correlated with strongly anti-Israel views. And it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's not. The extent to which algorithmic manipulation plays into this also. The Wall Street Journal had a really good piece where their reporters, you know, saw how, how long it took to get 
propaganda basically that was either anti-Israel or pro-Hamas or you know pro these these sorts of Jews or oppressors theories it was within like six or seven videos on average that they were they were fed this content and you actually see a pretty comparable volume on Instagram of pro-Israel and anti-Israel posts much more in line with like the the public opinion on on those issues there is pretty strong evidence that the Chinese government is putting their thumb on the scale when it comes to TikTok in particular and weighting the algorithm um, for a variety of reasons. The Chinese government has has supported Palestinian liberation movements for since the seventies. Um, that is that is not an excuse. Certainly, Israel and and Jewish journalists need to do a better job of getting where readers are like it's not readers jobs to find Jewish journalism and you know we all like to think we are immune from media messaging but we're really not so I I think all three of these things play a part together Um, and I think it is it's very toxic the way that you know for the first few hundred years of our country's history you know, we have this racial hierarchy with white on the top, and there's been an attempt to flip that, and it, it hasn't always been so sophisticated in its execution. And, you know, Israelis are seen, like you said, as, as just white-coded. Um, and because of that, I don't think they're given the same sympathy and grace that, that others are. Uh, Laura, just one more question about in your new role, sort of what concretely are you going to be doing to... Um address all of this? Because it's, it's clear where the obstacles lie, but, but how are you going to be able to? Um, yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot of the job is going to be focusing on similar issues, but in a different way, it will be, you know, I will be advocating for things rather than just reporting on them. And a lot of the work right now is literally just getting into the room where it's called conflict-related sexual violence is discussed and making sure that October 7th is a part of those conversations. Um, in my first few weeks at the job, there's there's going to be a few opportunities to speak to government leaders um, in various capacities about the extent to which sexual violence occurred on October 7th and some of the challenges in the aftermath. It's also going to be public messaging. Jewish Women International is a nonprofit organization and actually originally was like the women's auxiliary of B'nai B'rith over a hundred years ago and has since evolved into a independent nonprofit that works on um, gender-based violence, um, economic justice, and then women's leadership. Um, So right now, again, most of the focus or a lot of the focus is specifically on sexual violence in the context of October 7th, but also all of this stuff is, is interconnected. Um, there will also be a lot of, a lot of work on, as you know, the United States gun policies are convoluted and not always benefiting um, the victims of crimes as much as the perpetrators. And I'm someone who fully believes in, in gun rights and gun ownership rights, but there's, there's a lot of work in terms of just, for example, preventing people who have a restraining order from being able to purchase um, a weapon, things like that. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of just, in a similar vein, like spreading these issues and the facts of what happened in ways that people can understand them and in places where they already are. So, of course, social media, but also in you know, the, the halls of power, as we kind of highfalutinly call them, you know, where, where people are making decisions about how to spend money and, and prioritize these issues. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. If I can switch gears for a bit um, back to media, one of... uh 
your most recent and I guess one of the last columns that you wrote for the yes. uh, forward uh, is about uh, Art Green and his recent uh, misdeeds or alleged misdeeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, can you recap for us what the story is up until now and what your, um, you know, what makes this episode different or similar than anything else? Sure. And and I'm comfortable not saying alleged because he, the rabbi actually admitted to the things that he mm-hmm. did. Um, and he called them, quote, completely inappropriate and out of bounds. But essentially, Rabbi Arthur Green was the founding dean of Hebrew College's rabbinical school, which is a small non-denominational school outside of Boston. Um, was, as far as we know, forced into retirement and then later barred from campus after he made an advance on a former student who was then a faculty member at an off-campus event. Um, There was an allegation of, of separate incidents of misconduct, which the rabbi has denied. But the thing that we know that he admitted happened was he you know he says he was high or drunk or one of those things he he tried to kiss a male colleague in a you know in a non-campus setting um and he's you know admitted this behavior was inappropriate his his letter that he sent um to his own mailing list after the university made a public statement about it um he essentially bristled at um I think he called it, you know, this generation's um, desire for a public reckoning. Um, he, he basically admitted that what he did was wrong, but didn't feel like he was being treated fairly in the aftermath. Yeah, so I, I read the the long story about this, and I was torn, and I was not sure what to make of this, because it definitely seems like he used bad judgment. But I kept thinking, I kept thinking, okay, so this was his student, right? No, this was his employee. What's this? Is mm-hmm. his employee? Yeah, it was no. a former, or, former student. A former, former student. Former student who became a faculty member. I believe he was in his mid-30s when the incident happened. Um, but it was someone that, you know, worked for the organization that he founded. I don't know. I, I guess I, I just felt very torn because I think on the one hand, what Me Too has done in terms of at least raising awareness, if not always, you know, as, as you write, you know, if not always actually addressing what's actually happening in workplaces is important. But at a, at a certain point, if this isn't his student, if this is an adult, and an, one adult tries to kiss another adult, it can be, there are different types of bad. And I guess I was yeah. wondering what l- made you call this abuse? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I did yeah. consult with lawyers on this, but, um, I think the first thing, putting the the letter of the law aside, is there's a real lack of recognition on the part of the rabbi of the power imbalance here. This is a member of an organization you founded who is employed by your organization. Um, And I think, you know, in a lot of legal cases, there's this idea of a reasonable person standard. I think most reasonable people know that if you are in a position of power within an organization, you do not make a move on a subordinate, period. Um, But the reason that I wrote this piece was I, I found the tone of his letter, not to tone police, but it, it seemed much less apologetic about the incident happening and more complaining about the consequences of the behavior. Um, And when you do look at the letter of the law, unwanted sexual conduct, even if it's a kiss, is actually something that legally counts as sexual assault in a lot of states. And this certainly constitutes assault or battery, um, if you are touching someone against their will without their consent. Um, I certainly do sympathize with the idea that this happened a long time ago. Um, it was two, cons- two, you know, adults. Um, but I just, I think it shows a real lack of judgment to make a move on a subordinate without, you know, period. But I I certainly am sympathetic to the idea that 
I don't know the internal politics of the organization super well. Um, and I certainly understand that this man might feel like he was, was wronged by what he probably saw as his organization. Um, but at the end of the day, I think there should be consequences for behavior. I'm, I'm not, as I wrote in my, my piece, I certainly am not one that believes in criminalizing wrong ideas or wrong thoughts, but I don't want to live in a society where bosses feel like it's appropriate to make moves on their employees. And sure. no, I think that, I think that makes sense. I mean, I just had a, another question though, about this, which is whether you think this would have played out diff well, it's sort of maybe a two parter, but like whether it would have played out differently if he had made this unwanted move on a woman who was mm -hmm. otherwise yeah. sort of same role, but also just more generally, I mean, when I think of sexual harassment and its significance in the workplace, it's not just about one person being made afraid or uncomfortable. It's also about keeping women down mm. in the workplace. You know, that's some of why this has become such a, a topic. It's not, it's a type of gender discrimination at work, mm. you know? Yeah. And so basically I'm asking, I guess, sort of the two questions is sort of what would be different had this, been, what would have gone differently as much as you can speculate ever, yeah. um, had this been a woman? And also, do you think this matters in a different way? Does it, like, is it less important maybe because this was a man and this is not, and the reason I bring this up not to digress too much is like was when we think, when I was thinking about um, Me Too stories and Jewish organizations and all of this, I was thinking of that demographer, um, Stephen Cohen, I believe, who, where it seemed all wrapped up with like, make Jewish babies and all of this. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like there was a sort of gen, a, a broader picture about the place of Jew Jewish women, mm -hmm. you know, in the community, whereas this doesn't obviously tap into that in the same way. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things to unpack in what you said. And obviously, we don't know how it would have gone down if it was a woman and not a man. But the the individual in question who was I believe sexually assaulted had the inappropriate pass made at them um, was a man in a gay relationship. And I think that a lot of, of this culture of, um, you know, workplace misconduct has more to do with objectification than like the, the gender part of it often. And I think in the same way that, women are often objectified um gay men are often over sexualized and in the rabbi's piece he in his letter he you know he he blamed you know being a, a closeted bisexual man and the death of his wife um i one of i got many letters in response to um this piece and one of the ones that upset me the most is i had a congregational rabbi um who reached out and used the line, um, the kiss was not unwanted. It was perceived as unwanted by the object on which it was placed. And I think what? that kind of exemplifies. <laughs> oh I was like, Rabbi, people are not objects. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm with you that a lot of the issues here are around the response and his response specifically. Um, and, and I have two lines of thinking going on in my mind. One is that um, this is an individual that is a spiritual leader. And as a result, in addition to being the dean of a school, right, has a higher moral compass that he is supposed to be projecting. And therefore, even a smaller indiscretion is held under greater scrutiny and, you know, and that that's an issue there. Um, he's also known very much for being one of the leaders of the neo-Hasidic movement. And the Hasidic world, I can imagine, leads one with, with the culture of rabbi, of rebbies, right, where you go and see that this person is a higher individual who is on a higher spiritual plane. You can see people, and I don't know who, the, who wrote that letter to you, but I'm like, yeah, I can see somebody who is Hasidic would go and say, well, the rabbi is the, in, is the entity here and everything else is an object for the rab mm -hmm. for the rebbe to go and and do something and i'm, I'm not justifying it i'm actually yeah, yeah. doing the opposite but it's yeah. like 
I, I think so much of this is wrapped up in this world of like, well, this is an, uh, a Hasidic individual or somebody who yeah. really embodies the Hasidic tradition in a liberal space, and that therefore it gets really, really messy. Here. Yeah, no, I mean, one of one of my earlier stories at the forward was about Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach and his abuses of women and girls. And I, I think you're spot on that there's this combination of like guru culture with people forgetting or, you know, we're all damaged in different ways, but like damaged people forgetting the power and sway that they hold is, is definitely a big part of this. I, I, I'm with you that he's downplaying the whole thing and that that's where I really have no problem throwing him under the bus and saying, no, you don't get it, right? The problem isn't that you did this action. The problem is your response to it and the response overall that you have a responsibility to a public about um, a repentance that you get to say, right, oh, I get to do this privately. I don't want to have anybody talk about this. Kids these days want to do everything publicly. I mean, number one, I, I do think the, the initial action was, was also bad. I think his doubling I, down... I'm not saying, but he has accepted on the fact yeah. that that actually happened. Right. He's not denying it. That's a big step forward. Right. I, you are 100% right that it was an abuse, but if he is admitting to it, that's one thing. But then going and saying, well, I don't need to do anything public about it, that's where I'm like even everything was right up until this point, right? This is where you're gone. There was a line in the letter where he, the, the rabbi also bristled at the fact that the person he made a move on um, didn't want to talk it out privately and deal with it privately. Like they reported it to the school. They wanted it to be an institutional process. And I think that just points to, again, a lack of seeing the power dynamic at play here. Um, that could have played out in other ways. I guess this is where I'm the the libertine is that like, if somebody, everybody, all of us were once students, all of us were once children, you know, at a certain point, adults are adults, you know, but, but, but I think that it's different if somebody's still involved in an organization. And I I guess I, I think it's important still to be thoughtful about like, to not put a power imbalance lens on absolutely everything. Cause like, yeah, there, there were a bunch totally. of cases with me too, where it was like, this is a famous writer and people really like respect that writer and somebody really enjoyed their work. It's like, well, that's not really like a position of authority, you know, but it's different if, yeah, I think in organizations it's, um, and and that's by the way, where I'm willing to really have compassion for him is, you know, and I had, I've had colleagues tell me, you, you don't know what it's like to be a widow or a widower. You don't realize how crushingly lonely it is. You don't realize how often you make really poor decisions because of that, you know, mental load that you have on yourself. And don't be quick to judge an individual in those situations. And I'm like, you're right. You were given a really bad set of circumstances. But yet, if you're a dean of a school for decades, you should have enough presence of mind to think to yourself, I know what a wrong idea is, and I'm not going to go and do that. I'm thinking that that's sort of like easier said than done in a lot of actual situations. Like if you're in a small community, maybe whether it's that you have a minority sexual orientation or you're part of a minority religious group or whatever it is, I don't think there's always this infinite pool of people to choose from. And I think, I guess what I'm saying is I think like when you're talking about things that are in the realm of consenting adults, you want to be like careful about creating new I mean I think this case seems like pretty straightforward it's an organization he was still working for it it's not just about his like charisma that he may have yeah no I I think there's two separate things here right there's the Avi I'm with you of the like ethics and high-minded morality of it and I I agree with you like I, I I think when we talk about these these incidents and we're trying to unpack them intellectually sometimes we need to take a step back like I'm in my 20s. I'm a manager. I have, you know, a few people that are my direct reports. I also have people who are non-managers at my company. The idea of ever making a pass at anyone who is in that category is just so clearly not okay that that is really where I, I start this whole operating principles from. It's like that is so clearly legally questionable it's so clearly violating policies of my organization it's so clearly not the type of person or manager that i want to be that like maybe let's hold this rabbi to the same standards that we would hold ourselves for a second laura can i ask you uh, a question i'm gonna jump in 
In your piece, uh, started off talking about getting a call a while ago from um, someone looking for advice about how to deal with the, the they got in trouble for some sort of sexual misconduct, and that and it set the tone for your or the, the one major theme of the piece was a frustration between of uh, people wanting to do something publicly that like sort of looked like saying the right things. And you were saying that, as I understood, what you wanted to hear was someone really interested in contrition and growth and uh, some sort of inner um, repair, as opposed to just saying the right things. I guess my question is like, like, does it matter if it feels hard to like police someone's heart. And if someone says, if someone says and does all the right things, like, do we care if they're really interested in growth? Maybe in his heart of hearts, he really doesn't think it's wrong, but should that matter to us? No, it's a good question. I I think I'm less concerned with the heart of hearts of it all and more frustrated by people who are very good at seeming sorry when they got caught. I don't believe, again, in punishing wrong ideas, but I actually think that if you are a public intellectual or a public figure or a leader in an organization and you abuse that position, like a consequence should be that you don't automatically get to continue being in positions and getting access to the same sorts of situations that set you up for failure in the first place. So... You know, this individual in question, um, you know, my mentor was calling to ask me about his friend who, you know, it took him all of five seconds to recover from, it was decades of workplace misconduct, basically. And, you know, he did his I'm very sorry statements, you know, he went away for four months and, you know, he started his next project and I'm keeping it very vague intentionally, but like, I... (laughs) There are so many really good journalists who fight tooth and nail to do really good work, to be really good people, to uphold the highest standards of morality and ethics, to be in the rooms where conversations would ha- are happening. And instead of them getting rewarded with leadership positions, we get the same figures who have been in power for decades and sometimes have pretty tired ideas about even how to run things getting access and funding and the podium. And I think I'm more, I don't really care if this man ever feels bad or sorry for abusing those women in his workplace, because ultimately it doesn't matter. The damage was done. I do care that he is taking funding and a platform that could be occupied by a fresher, younger maybe more moral voice. And I think that's the real issue here. You know, journalism, I happen to work in a a news organization that is very female dominated, but the industry as a whole is not. And particularly, you know, opinion journalism, I spend a lot of time trying to recruit female writers. Like it's just a space that's very dominated by men who have the leisure of, you know, having a wife to, to do domestic duties and have, you know, extra time to write not to overgeneralize, but I'm more frustrated by the fact that we are spending so much time like relitigating these men's misdeeds rather than like focusing on elevating new ideas. This is this is so interesting. Um, I have a million thoughts about the opinion journalism angle, um, (laughs) but I will hold off on that in favor of just I think it's interesting because it, it shows what's different, what's possible is different in different industries, right? Because you have something like with Louis C.K., where a lot of people were sort of upset that he had this quick, um, so this is a comedian who was in trouble for um, sexual misconduct. Um, but there was a lot of discussion of like, how dare he come back? But the fact is, there were huge audiences prepared to pay for him to perform, I guess. And it seems sort of like the market decided this one. And I mean, that obviously is different if you're talking about like a religious organization, especially, but also just um, yeah, media or, or different or academia, different organizations. Um, but also um, one thing that has frustrated me about Me Too more generally is that there hasn't really been an answer to what should happen. It's just hard. It's hard for me to figure out 
what is the appropriate thing apart from just like these things saying that these things shouldn't happen. And then I think you do end up with these situations where what happens is a man phrases an apology very nicely, but yeah, nothing necessarily or, or doesn't as the case may be. Um, yeah, nothing necessarily changes. Yeah, I think that I would double down and I would say the opinion journalists are actually doing the right thing when we relitigate these things in public, right? I think, you know, to me, you didn't go far enough, if anything, when you went and told this story about this, you know, well, my, this guy that, you know, I was getting, giving the advice to what I really wanted to say was he should read a 700 page book from the medieval world about how to do chuva properly. And I'm like, if anything, Art Green is exactly the person who you should tell that to, mm, right? The reason yeah. why we are having a hard time with you, Art Green, as a person is because you of all people know that there are th- hundreds of books about how to do chuva properly, how to go and show contrition and how to do this and you seem to say I'm going to go do this on my own I'm not interested in anybody telling me anything this is not really a big deal you're like no go and read these books go and figure out because that's what you've done your whole career and if we don't go and hold these people to account and say you of all people should know how to do chuva properly and you are not doing it right that's the problem yeah I mean and part of the moral of I I love this text Shari Chuva the gates of repentance or return Um, I mean it's the author of this book, right? He was a big critic of Maimonides. He conspired with the Catholic Church to burn Maimonides' texts in the public square. When he saw how excited they were to do it, basically, he realized the folly of his ways. But he spent the rest of his life trying to make amends and actually didn't. He ended up devoting the rest of his life to teaching the works of Maimonides in yeshivot around the world. He tried to make a pilgrimage mm-hmm. back to Maimonides' grave, which he didn't even end up making it to. He wrote this really beautiful book that's also, you know, the message of the 700 pages is you can't take it back, basically. Um, and you should understand how anguished, in his view, God is when you act this way. Like, the moral of that book to me is you you can't take it back. Like, and you can't fix everything. And this is not a, a Western fairy tale. Like actions have consequences. There's, you know, there's another book that I try to read every year. This is real and you're totally unprepared. Every um, year. This is a book that I reread every year and I find something new out of it. It's uh, it's a book about the high holidays by Alan Liu. Yes. Alan Liu. And there's, there's a story that I think about all the time where um, he is telling the story of his own personal failings as a congregational rabbi. And he, you know, says that there was this couple that got very involved in the synagogue. Um, the wife, I believe, converted to Judaism. Like, they, they became very active. And one of the members of the family um, was sick and in the hospital. And he was very busy running around. I think it was before Shabbat or a holiday or something. And he, he told them, like, I'll, I'll visit the hospital as soon as I can, like, after the holiday. And he forgot. And the couple ended up leaving his congregation and basically leaving organized Judaism because he got busy and forgot. It's a, it's a simple mistake even. And just the anguish with which he writes about what is really an innocent mistake, but the consequences of that mistake on, on these individuals lives. I wish that there was like one ounce of that in Rabbi Green's response. Like, this has been a great conversation. Um, first of all, will you stick around and do a nachos with us? Yes, I'd love to. Excellent. Before we do that, though, um, we'd love to hear what you guys think. Uh, as listeners, uh, please email us with comments, with thoughts, with ideas about this, um, because I'm sure you guys have ideas about this. Um, bonjour at the CJN.ca. Um, let us know what you think. Laura, what's your nachos this week? So I have been very involved in a book club, an Israel book club, um, for over a year. Um, And since October 7th, the sense of community that that has provided has been just really incredible. And the book that I um, selected before October 7th was Dara Horn's People Love Dead Jews. And after October 7th, reading that book with this group of, you know, uh, Jews in their 20-somethings living in New York City, 
it was just really powerful to process both that text and what was happening in, in liberal spaces in New York and all of that in real time. Um, so my, my Nachas is being very grateful for the Israel Policy Forum book club and the people in it. Avi, what's your Nachas this week? You know, I was, I was going to turn this into a Nachas and then um, realized that I was more, I, I was more had a kvetch about it, or I was a little more broigus, as you can say. Um, we've been pondering this for a while, and I think I want to give us, Phoebe, um, a little more leeway that either sometimes we have a nachas or uh, sometimes we're a little pissed off about something. Uh, in Yiddish, you might say you're broigus about something, or you might say you have a kvetch colloquially. We'll figure out what that is. Um, this week, I have a broigus. I'm, I'm a little kvetchy about stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw that uh, people are up in arms that St. Vieter is selling no whole bagels anymore it would never have occurred to me to pronounce sam viator that would never have occurred to me anglo way to do it i had no idea okay um and you know so they're what are they doing they're selling bagels without holes in them when you say without holes do you mean that they're selling hamburger buns so yes first of all first of all as a new yorker you should know that that's called a bialy it's not a, it's not a, it's not a bagel without a hole. But yes, go on. Yeah, it's whatever. <laughs> but yeah, it's a bagel essentially without a hole in it. Is, so the question is, is the hole, first of all, an essential feature of a bagel or not? Or is it the method in which this item is being cooked? Um, and my broigusness is, is that regardless of what you think about this, this is a temporary promotional stunt that was cooked up by Philadelphia cream cheese um, in response to people, quote unquote, wanting more space for cream cheese on their bagels. I have no problem with St. Vieter bagel saying for the next month we will happen to have on the side if you want to try this thing the same bagel dough the same bagel baking the same bagel everything but without a hole in it and it's this cute little extra fun thing that they're doing stop getting so mad at these things that have to stay sacred and be exactly the way that they were and never change any moment in any sort of way um, I mean I do think that a cinnamon raisin bagel is sacrilege but that's because it's being sold constantly and it's its own thing and it's separate stop getting so crazy about everything Everything. That's my uh, little kvetch of the week. Avi, <laughs> I, has can I, I just have, yes, I do. I mean, I have a very specific question, and this this is going to bring Laura in as well because this is about bagel types and um, New York versus Montreal, the eternal question. As a as a Jew of New York and Montreal heritage myself, I have I'm steeped in this topic. But uh, so I actually I make bagels at home um, wow. because one of my kids has a sesame allergy. So um, Wait, do you have a wood burning oven? I do not have a wood. Well, then it's oven, not a bagel. They come out, okay, but they come out. It's not a they bagel. Come out actually, like I was back in New York, they come out remarkably similar when you practice enough times. They do. But the point is, um, I have a question about these bagels, which is when you say they don't have a hole, is it that a la the New York bagel? It's just so puffy that the hole has closed up, or no, no, no this isn't this yeah. is important, yeah, yeah. or is there no attempt at a hole? Because many, like I have had some of the best bagels I've ever yeah. had, have had that where the hole, totally. it's like almost like a belly button or something, you know, and I'm not yeah. describing, you know what I mean? I believe that, I, I wasn't there for the process of making it, but I believe that what they're doing is instead of taking a uh, a string of dough and then attaching okay. it at the ends and making a ring of dough mm-hmm. that then gets baked, they're taking the same dough, turning it into a ball, and then oh. putting it in. Okay, so that that now um, mm-hmm. is against my own yeah. religion. Yeah. Sure, but you don't have to <laughs> buy it, and it's for a month. It's like its own thing. Stop getting like so, you know... I think I'm just annoyed at it as a New Yorker who's like, no, this already exists, bagels. What I'm more annoyed of, and and I'm sorry, but we'll spend more time talking about bagels, is when you go to New York and you get a bagel and they put like basically a half a pound of cream cheese on that thing. That's the best um, because part. they're afraid that you're going to get complained <laughs> that you're going to complain that you're like you didn't put enough schmear on there and they just keep throwing more cream cheese on there. It, the, the proportions are completely out of proportion. Phoebe, <laughs> do you have a nachos this week? I don't. I think I'm quite stunned by this bagel topic and I'm tempted <laughs> to just like expand upon that. But I have I'm going to join you and. So I always thought that the word Bruegus meant like an old family grudge, like somebody didn't go to somebody else's bar mitzvah in 1960 and everybody's still mad about it, you know, years on. That's what I think of as a Bruegus. So I don't feel like, but I feel like this is going to be in the spirit of a Bruegus because it involves the olden times. It's a blog TO article, blog post, whatever you call it, um, called This $1 million Toronto Home is the Epitome of, quote, Boomer Special. And it's this post mocking some house that looks very sort of 70s or 80s so there's a quote from it um 
Okay, and because this is it's the first time this home has been on the market, it's a really good picture of all the things a boomer does to a house that make millennials and Gen Z ask the question, why? Dear God, why? And I'm a millennial. I'm not certainly not a Gen Z, but I am a millennial. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking this house is fantastic. I love it. Um, I don't really see the problem here. Um, why are they making fun of this kitchen for having linoleum floors? What do they want to be on the kitchen floors? Um linoleum floors check 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 that's supposed to be like bad wood pat it's like wood paneling check okay popcorn ceilings i agree i don't like popcorn ceilings but um carpeted over hardwood hardwood flooring oh okay whatever um but it's just it's basically it's a very retro looking house um that looks but like good retro and i really don't see why this person at blog to apart from because this is how they get clicks is um so mad at it and they don't speak for all millennials is what i'm saying so <laughs> yeah yeah i think that it's it's probably i haven't seen the house but it sounds like what it is it's in the the non-cool valley there's a valley in which things are not cool and then they become cool again because there's enough p- time passed by and this is this is there it's not yet mid-century modern but in 10 years it's going to be oh yes of course the wood paneled basement the, of, the, of our youth and the you know whatever else you're going to go and say uh, like you know, okay, that's their thing. For what it's worth, I think my grandparents had <laughs> both of the couches in the in this house. So, uh, and it has a wood burning stove. Um, you could make bagels, though. They have a wood burning stove. It seems precisely. No, you're right. Good point. Good. Good yes. bringing it back together. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. And I really am impressed with all of all that you do and all that you are off to go do. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 3rd, Shabbat Parashat Yitro. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca.